I'm Mark Asson. I'm Stacy Roberts. And we, we are, are the Sons, Sons of Joy. Joy. You're listening to Sajcast number 22. Our 22nd ever Sajcast. This week's Sajcast is sponsored by the Free Store Food Bank of Cincinnati. Oh, hang on a second. Did you say sponsored by? Oh, well, I did. And it comes from having done this 21 other times. Yeah, so for the first time, um, we're actually not being sponsored by anyone or anything or any person. We've decided to turn that model on its head and to give something back. So rather than being sponsored by the Free Store Food Bank, this Sajcast is actually sponsoring the Free Store Food Bank. A small but important consonant on the end of the word sponsor. English is funny that way. Yes. And the reason we're doing this is because our show, as you may have noticed, is about food and food porn. And we thought that while we're talking about decadent descriptions of luxurious food that is plentiful... <laughs> Readily available, it occurs to us that there are a large number of people, a distressingly large number of folks, for whom food porn is simply just getting something to eat today. The Free Store Food Bank of Cincinnati handles that quite well, to the tune of 300,000 people every year who get food that they would not otherwise have. Yeah, so it's worth mentioning kind of what, what exactly the Free Store Food Bank does. So this isn't your, your grandma's canned food drive that you might remember from your childhood. So they don't want lima beans and, and cream, cream corn. What they do is actually take donations and purchase in large quantities things that, uh, that, that they uh, are going to use to feed people. So they work with uh, food producers and, and wholesalers and buy in large numbers. And uh, they moved 18 million pounds. So we're talking about large numbers. 18 million pounds of donated food last year. That's a lot of food and grocery to go out. So they're able to uh, use buying power and a, a very efficient network to, to get people fed. And if you think about um, how well they're doing... 94 cents of every dollar they bring in goes to the people they serve. Yes. And that's a significant track record. So there will be links on our website for the Free Star Food Bank of Cincinnati and ways that you can donate and um, help their clients. One of the things that they talk about doing is that they use food to start a conversation with their clients because most people who are experiencing hunger... Uh, usually have something else going on in their lives. And so the Free Store Food Bank is working the problem in the in a tradition that stretches back to the dawn of time. Sit down. Have something to eat. Let's talk about what's going on in your life. And it is remarkably effective. And so we are grateful for the work that they're doing. And they are the first ever charity that is sponsored by the Sajcast. As opposed to last week's Sajcast, which was sponsored by charity. We're complicated like that. <laughs> I've had a relationship with the Free Store Food Bank. I've been supporting them since I moved here um, about two years ago. But I, uh, we were talking about this in pre-prod. You and I have been involved in things like the Free Store Food Bank basically since we were teenagers working at a restaurant supply warehouse where they were nice enough to donate their time and services to um, a charity that's very similar to that in Florida, which I don't know if it exists anymore. But uh, neither here nor there. So uh, anyway, we're happy Mostly to continue, <laughs> continue that tradition um, here in Cincinnati and designate our first ever um, sponsor as the Free Store Food Bank. So we want to uh, give them our time and our voice and uh, our marketing prowess such as it is. So all of our 12 fans out there, have a look at the Free Store Food Bank and consider donating to them. Yes. If you like food, time to share it with other people. Exactly. And speaking of sharing, our writing contest for March, the first ever Saji Awards, Yes, the entrants have been coming in. Yes, we've been uh, getting some submissions for the writing contest about fish, and the deadline has been extended, in our mercy, to March 25th. Yes, so you have a few more days than you thought you had. In fact, uh, originally the deadline was supposed to happen before this Sajcast airs, but now it's been extended for a few days after at least the original airing because, of uh, number 22. We know how you like to procrastinate, and so we're giving you a little extra time. But, uh, yeah, let's say we have, so far we've had entrants from near and wide. We've had some from as close as Cincinnati, which is, well, here. And we've had some as far away as uh, Afghanistan and South Africa. So I don't know which of those two is further away. I'd have to go look at a map. But they're both pretty far away. Yes. And they've been, uh, it's been exciting to read the, the stories that we're hearing from, from, especially from foreign lands. I think that we would, we would certainly love to hear more uh, international food porn. Yes, and in fact, a couple of questions came in was, you know, if if I'm from Russia, can I still join so, the Sajis? Is okay. 
we say, yes, it's okay. <laughs> da. Da. You take. So as long as you can spend a Visa, a Visa gift card wherever you happen to be, you're, you're good. So Feel free that's, to that's the prize. Convert it to rubles or uh, shekels. And even if you can't spend it, you're, you can still win. That's right. <laughs> so there you go. Winning is what we're all about. Uh, last weekend, we had our, our, well, not our first ever, but I'm certainly one of the few Sajcast field trips. Well, the first one that wasn't specifically about, let's go eat at this place. Oh, right. This was more about, let's go to the Lexington Comic and Toy Convention. Yes. Uh, so that we could see our friend, Charity Parkerson, who we interviewed in a previous episode, and I won't tell you which one, because you need to listen to them all. But if you listen carefully to our interview with Charity... She says that her favorite cupcakes in the world are made by Gigi's. Being supportive, we went out and got some Gigi's cupcakes, and they're good, but uh, my girlfriend Laura, who is a connoisseur of these things, uh, suggested Abbey Girl cupcakes as an alternative. Since we were going to Lexicon anyway, we brought Charity Parkinson a sampling from both companies, an Abbey Girl, four Abbey Girl cupcakes, and four Gigi's cupcakes, Charles Joy can correct us on this, but we believe it is the first ever cupcake delivery made live to a Comic-Con. Yes, we, we marched into the con. Unlike everybody else, we were not in, in any kind of odd costume or cosplay, but we did have boxes of cupcakes. Yes, and people, I would have expected they would have cleared a path for us, because we, from their perspective, we were weirdos. We should have asked the stormtroopers for help. Yes, but they were, well, you know, stormtroopers, they're a... They're a bit off-putting, so... Charity this week is icing up her writing muscles because she spent <laughs> last weekend signing books like crazy. So you're saying the signed books were just the icing on the cupcakes. You could say that. Or something. Or something like that. We're, Charity has offered to come back on the show and give us the results of the taste test that we essentially forced upon her. There you go. And so some other notable names that you might recognize from the convention. Yes, we saw Billy D. Williams. Billy D. Williams. We saw him. I mean, I think the, the, the most fun we had was while we were waiting to get our tickets, we actually were next to Billy D. Williams in the hallway in a, you know, just a, hey, you're Billy D. Williams <laughs> kind of way. Because after that, he was, you know, up on his pedestal signing books with a giant line and all that. Right. But we it, was, it was just odd to see, like, hey, that's Billy D. Williams right there walking down the hall. And my daughter, who was with us, uh, Caitlin, she's 17, she said, who is that? And we said... Oh my God, that's Billy D. Williams. And she said, yeah. Who is that? <laughs> I need a little more. So that was Billy D. Williams. And also, uh, there was Margot Kidder. Margot Kidder was there as well, yes. And, um, the guy who was in Chewbacca's suit. Yes. In the who Star many Wars. of us would not recognize otherwise. Right. So yeah, it was, it was interesting to, uh, to, to pal around the con for a while and, uh, and see what was what. Uh, and I guess speaking of, of cons, I'll, I'll be in St. Louis this weekend. At the St. Louis Comic Convention, and uh, I'll actually be sharing a table with uh, the Sajcast's friend Charles Joy, and we'll be drawing stuff for people. Uh, much of it will be zombie guy related, I'm sure, but um, anything else that uh, we can think of, we'll be we'll be drawing in. We'll be working on our surfaces, which we've been tweeting about. If you've caught any of those tweets, there's been an awfully cute panda bear, and today there was a hippopotamus who was all tiny and baby and cute. And so we're using our, our surfaces to create that content, and we're going to do that live. So we're actually going to have a, a monitor facing outward so people can watch as we kind of doodle away on our on our surfi. Well, and I think that we should put links uh, or pick, you put the pictures on our yeah, so website we, for this Sajcast so people can see what you can do. The baby hippopotamus is not foodborne. <laughs> Thanks for clarifying. And speaking of foodborne, we had also this week, in a week of firsts, we had our first ever Sajcast intervention. An inter yes, that's right. Because I was going to Taco Bell, which is one of your favorite places, and I go infrequently. In fact, the last time I was at a Taco Bell was probably two years ago. And so I was already in the car on the way to Taco Bell, and I thought, oh my god, I don't know what to order. And so I texted you in a panic, and I said, uh, help, <laughs> I'm going to Taco Bell, and I have no idea what to get. And um, yours is a scene right out of Pulp Fiction. It was like when they called the wolf. Yes, we have a problem. We have a problem. We need someone to come in and clean this mess up. And so your suggestion was to get a Mexi Melt and a Nacho Supreme because the Nacho Supreme is dual purpose. It's not just for eating. You can also use the container to put your your used sauce packets in. Yeah, but well, I think the Mexi Melt is an underrepresented thing in the Taco Bell menu um, because it's one of the few things that actually comes with what you might perceive as healthy stuff, uh, which is... Um, 
uh, a salsa, uh, salsa cruda, I guess, for lack of a better word. But yeah, it's chopped up tomatoes, onions, and cilantro with, um, oh, I guess a little ground beef generally and cheese. But th- there's a whole lot of that salsy stuff in there, which is, which is a really nice thing. Well, in, in, in an effort, in the ongoing effort to eat healthy, much like we used to go to Chinese buffets when we were in our early twenties to get vegetables, sometimes you gotta go to Taco Bell or you'd never encounter lettuce in your normal daily routine. So your advice came in right at, at the proper time. We were in the drive-through line like, when I record, got the text. We're not saying healthy eating includes trips to Taco Bell to no, get lettuce. <laughs> we're not, but we're saying that if you're going to Taco Bell anyway, at least get some lettuce. <laughs> at least get some lettuce, maybe some tomato. A little cilantro is nice. Just saying. There's so. not a lot of cilantro on their menu. It's like I said, it's one of the it's one of the nice things about it. So, so that all worked out for you then. It really did. I haven't I haven't been to Taco Bell enough to develop a standard order, and yes. and we referred to this in earlier podcasts that when you go to certain restaurants or especially fast food, you have a standard order. And uh, over the next few quite a while, I will develop my own standard Taco Bell food order. Well, and what's funny is I I have a mixed relationship with Taco Bell because I I really do enjoy their food. I mean, the first time I remember eating it, because I don't remember doing this in high school because we grew up in South Florida. And I don't know if, apparently, uh, what our chain at the time was, was Taco Viva. And apparently that wasn't national because Suzanne didn't remember it. Uh, but they had a, a number of really interesting, kind of funny commercials that I remember very clearly that were all based on the Clint Eastwood character, if you remember this. And, you know, he would he would push open the cantina doors and, and you know, there would be a gunfight or whatever. And they would pan over to the, the Clint Eastwood character and he would say, You said taco, but you didn't say Viva. And that was, that was their whole message. So this was, you know, the first Mexican food I was ever experiencing when I was a kid. We didn't have Taco Bell and, and we didn't run into, I didn't run into Taco Bell with any regularity until I was in school in Michigan. Um, and the dorm didn't serve food on Sundays, so you had to go fend for yourself. And, you know, with $3, you can get a lot of food at Taco Bell. So it's, it's, that's what you would do. It really is disturbing how much of our early lives were centered around, we have this much money. <laughs> How much food can we get? Because there was a $7 standard Arby's order Yes. when we were in high school. Uh, there was the $5 Chinese buffet of college fame. And so there's always, no matter how much money we we end up with, there's always a, how much food can we buy with this? Well, yeah, because, well, think speaking of Arby's, it was like, not to tie into a previous podcast, but there was a, for me, there was always a great quantity of Arby's sauce, the RBQ sauce. Uh, which is a, an odd thing, but at Taco Bell, at least this is my my current closest Taco Bell, is a very oddly run facility because it's near the highway and it's in not the best neighborhood. And so, if you want sauce packets, you basically have to arm wrestle the manager for each one. Uh, they don't just, you know, most Taco Bells, you walk in, you reach your hand into a, a vat, and you take as many as you need, and you leave. Here, you must ask for them. And, you know, explain that, well, I like to put two on a taco, and I bought three tacos, therefore I need at least six. And they'll say, no, I don't believe you. <laughs> yes, I mean, so. it's, a, it's a very weird thing. But you didn't go there. You went to somewhere No, else. I went to a place where they just dumped a whole handful of sauces in the bag. I should have saved them for you. That way you can yes. you can supplement your trips to your local Taco Bell. They used you... to sell it, actually, at the store in, oh, the, uh, oh, that's in, the, right. in the sauce section, but I haven't seen it in many, many, many a while. So yes. uh, that would have saved me some trouble. But anyway, yeah, so I got to, I got to act as the wolf to uh, to your Taco Bell scenario, and everyone came out. Okay, no one found the body or, or whatever it was. <laughs> yes, whatever that metaphor is, it did not happen. On to the interview. Yeah, so this week we're interviewing Robert Irvine. Robert Irvine is a luminary in the food world. He has a 90% success rate. Did you know that with his restaurants? I did not know that. I wonder if the one you went to is in the 90%. Well, we'll find out. <laughs> so, stay tuned. Right now, our interview with Robert Irvine. On today's podcast, we have a very special guest. Chef Robert Irvine, host of the Food Network's top-rated restaurant, Impossible, which airs Wednesday nights. Before that, he was the host of Dinner Impossible. Uh, chef Robert Irvine is the chef who, when handed lemons, makes a lemon meringue pie for 50 people. Chef Irvine, thanks for coming on our show. Oh, you're welcome. And just so you know, Stacey, we go between Wednesdays and Sunday nights. Sunday nights at 10 o'clock also. Oh, okay. Uh, shows, so. That's good to know. I have actually seen every single episode of Restaurant Impossible. Uh, I'm I'm uh, happy that it's on more often. <laughs> Me too. Keep yeah. me busy. <laughs> That's right. So, uh, Chef Irvine, tell us about your fascination with the impossible. 
because that's a recurring theme in all of your shows. And you're kind of the guy who who takes hopeless situations and, and brings the hope back. Why pick that angle of supposedly impossible situations and turning them around? Well, I think it's military training, first and foremost. Um, you deal with situations in the military um, with the end in mind. Um, so, so we kind of work backwards. We, we know the goal we have to achieve, and uh, we take steps to achieve that. And, and both in the restaurant and dinner impossible, um, and everything else that I do, it's kind of interesting to to see the people that are having issues, uh, and I come up with solutions based on that military training to fix them issues. Um, so it's kind of a and we thrive on stress. Is is a better way to put it. <laughs> <laughs> the more stress we have, the better it is. Well, I think that's what makes the show exciting. And from from watching all of the episodes, in in the case of Restaurant Impossible in particular, it seems that more often than not, your biggest challenge, bigger than the food and the decor, is the restaurant owner themselves. Have you found that to be the case? Uh, yeah, well, we originally started the show two years ago. Um, you know, we were going to go in, fix the restaurant, do the menu, and make it look all pretty, and off we go. But the, the, the first two episodes, the show took on a life of its own based on the owners and the characters um, that they actually are in real life. You know, when a producer goes to a, to a restaurant and talks to them, they don't see that until, obviously, uh, I get there when they pick, and I have nothing to do with who they pick or where we go. And I also choose not to know who they are, what their story is, because I like it to uh, be told to me from them themselves rather than read it from a producer who can embellish it or, or you know, do what do whatever they want with it. So I prefer to get it from the people. So after the first couple of episodes, we started to see that, uh, hey, it's relationship-based, that um, if we fix the relationship, normally the restaurant can succeed quite nicely if we give them the, the tools to do so. And that, that was one of the most striking things I got from watching Restaurant Impossible, because I'm a business owner, and lately... The prevailing wisdom in business is that if you own your own business and you're not happy yourself, your business is, your business can fail based on your own mood and attitude, which is something uh, that's more than just bottom line profits. Absolutely. And if you think about, you know, and it's kind of strange, I'm going to take you out of your world for a second and, and, and think about um, when a painter paints an artist, you know, um, an impressionist or something, or a musician, um, when they're sad or angry, they think uh, very differently. And, and I think that's that's a great key uh, to business owners that, that getting to that downward spiral or that negative attitude, and that's how their business goes exactly like their attitude. Uh, and I find that more and more, whether you're in a restaurant business, whether you're in a, um, a skincare business, whether you're in an oil business, we're all in business in the same way, to make money um, and and have a life type thing. Um, but but if you don't have good relationships, not only at home, but also in your business, and you project that negative attitude, your business is going to fail dramatically. Yeah, and I, and I also think that in certain lines of work, since you brought up painting, but but also owning your own restaurant and serving food to people is a passion. It seems to me that your attitude can affect your passion in a, in a negative way. Oh, absolutely. You know, a restaurant, and ultimately that's what we're dealing with here, um, the idea of putting a beautiful piece of fish on a plate and, and cooking that fish correctly and serving it with a smile and giving somebody else a good uh, experience is, is what we do. And, and I was talking, I was in Las Vegas uh, yesterday at the pizza convention, and asking the same thing to business, a couple of thousand business owners. You know, yes, pizza is always going to be pizza, but what makes you different? What is the angle that makes you different? Is it, it has to be the customer service, because if I go into a restaurant and have food that is um, mediocre, I'm with a group of friends, the food is mediocre, the service is exceptional, I'll go back. But, if the, the food is amazing and the service sucks, there's no way you're going back. That's the right. service can save the food, but the food cannot save the service. Exactly. And along those lines, have you ever encountered a restaurant in your in your professional life 
that was really impossible to save? Um, honestly, no, I haven't because I don't believe in failure or defeat. I just believe in opportunities. Um, some are tougher than others, absolutely. You know, on the show, we have just finished our 71st episode, and, you know, I'm supposed to be in the restaurant by 6. Uh, the latest I've been into the restaurant is 10 o'clock at night, and a couple of weeks ago, 8 o'clock at night. Um, we we have people lining up from 5 o'clock onwards to get in there, so uh, it, it's kind of very interesting that um, when you when you uh, see the show and you think of and you think of what I do and you and you measure success, the success is is really on how do we how do we educate these people into doing a great job. Um, and my, you see how tough I am on Tom and Tanya and Cheryl and Lynn. Um, I'm tough on them because we have people's lives in our hands. Their livelihoods, uh, their homes, their savings, and everything else that goes with it. And it seems to me like there is a turning point where the owners of the restaurants who have been failing for a period of time understand where you're coming from finally and realize that it is their lives that are at stake. And they seem to... You know, the, the most successful transformations are the ones where the owners kind of rise up to that level and finally get what you're saying. And it seems like there's a moment where it clicks finally, and that's where you know that things are going to go well. It is, and it's normally eight hours into the, the, the day one. Up until eight hours and one minute um, of that show or that, that interaction with the, with the people um, – is then after that one minute after the eight hours that they finally realize that I'm not there to hurt them or make them look silly. Um, I'm there to help them. And when they get it, it's amazing how much they relax. They start to really learn quickly because let's face it, when we're happy, we learn quicker. We see pictures, we learn faster. Um, and what I do when I first walk in there is I ask them to tell me their story, how they got there, show me the food, show me the service, when you hold a mirror up to somebody and they don't like what they see in the morning, it becomes fearful for them. Uh, they become embarrassed. They get defensive. And that's what you get that first eight hours. And it's not one. I've seen it in 71 episodes. I can almost tell you, okay, wait, 30, 20, here it comes, and they finally get it. So okay. I know I know the, 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 uh, the point that happens. So you mentioned fresh fish, and, and one of the things you talk a lot about is fresh ingredients. So I'm wondering, are there any practical trade-offs that you're willing to accept, um, not, not just in the restaurant world, but maybe for people doing their shopping at home? You know, what, what should we scrimp on, and what should we just spend lavishly on? Well, here's the thing. You know, people um, – I'm part of the Cisco Foods, and people always say to me, well, they're frozen foods. Well, I'm allowing you to use frozen foods in certain certain places because there are no fresh availabilities. You know, what I do with Cisco is they have the largest, and the reason I'm telling you is because it's, it's apparent to what I'm going to give you the answer to, uh, the largest uh, seed-to-table, um, what's the word I'm looking for, seed-to-table uh, following a product that says it's safe. Our supermarkets have the same thing. They can follow a seed from when it's planted to when it comes to uh, to your table. And the reason they do that is because of, you know, if we have a recall or something happens, we know exactly who picked it, where it came from, what farm, and, and et cetera, et cetera. What I'm saying to people is, okay, get fresh fruits, get fresh vegetables. If you have to use a frozen piece of meat, okay, well, you know, you can't get a fresh steak or, you know, that's okay. But buy it from a supplier that is handled it safely, cook it correctly, um, and, you know, don't take it out of the freezer and expect to uh, cook it in three minutes and uh, running under cold water because you've got to take it out the night before. Now, we have, to, we have to plan our lives, especially in the busy lives that we have, and kids and, you know, they've got to play, Johnny's got to play soccer, and Melissa's got to do swim practice and dance, uh, and we don't have any time to sit down. If you sit down on a Sunday and, and roughly map out a menu for the week and do your shopping and do some prep, um, it would be a lot easier for you. And I do that and I teach that all the time. Look, if you if you want to make your menu and you, you make it simple, these are the steps you can do to make it easy when you come home. You've got a meal on the table in 10 minutes. And I say the same thing to restaurant owners. 
what's the, what's the difference between searing a piece of fresh salmon, okay, and making a nice salsa or green bean salad with onions, tomatoes, and making a little vinaigrette, or even, you know, if you want, if you like, uh, you know, a balsamic vinaigrette from somebody in, a, in the supermarket, um, Paul Newman or whoever you like, buy it. You know, I'm not asking you to become a chef overnight. I'm asking you to think wisely and smartly about the foods which you purchase and the foods that you eat and making sure that your kids are not on uh, computers all day instead of running around doing what kids do. That's good advice. Um, one other uh, a, a restaurant question for our listeners. Is there one thing that if you walk into a restaurant and see it, the immediate response is just turn around and walk out? If the restaurant, if the restrooms are dirty. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, that's um, the first thing I do when I when I walk into a, a restaurant. Uh, the first thing I do is I go to the restroom. I won't even I won't even sit at the table. Okay, that's good to know. So I don't know. Let me just use the restroom. And if they can't be bothered to clean the restroom, they can't be bothered about the food, the service, or the cleanliness of the place. That's good to know. Um, and then, what factors would persuade you as a as a diner? to give a restaurant a second chance after a bad experience? That's very hard for me. Um, I am I am very unforgiving with that. And, and I tell you, and this it just happened to me two days ago. I had a, had a bad customer service agent at an airline um, tell me he couldn't check my bag because it wasn't uh, a hard case. And yet this bag had been on, you know, over a million miles on the airline, different airlines. And I said, well, you know, I'll find whatever I need to sign. It was a food cover, and the guy wasn't having it. And then I had to put my, then I had to put my bag, which was 83 pounds, and it was twice the weight. And I said, well, I'll just pay the difference, you know. Um, and and it, I would never fly the airline again. And it's so sad because the gay agent was great, the uh, the flight attendants were great, the pilot was great, but that one interaction with the guest completely threw me off the airline, and I won't fly them again. And on, on that subject, you know, no second chances, uh, uh, particularly with uh, the fact that you seem to travel a lot of the year. What kind of food do you eat while you're out traveling around for the show? The beautiful thing is I travel 345 days a year. And you can, you know, I eat, I eat, uh, I eat some junk food, you know. I eat burgers now and again, but not very often. I'm not a big fan of, of, of burgers, but... You know, if you want to get chicken breast and you, you run into an airport and you and you want to make something healthy, you can eat salads, you can eat chicken breast, you can eat pieces of fish. There's always an alternative that you can get. Um, you know, I make sure there's a gym close to my hotel that we can work out in all the time. And, uh, you know, I've got most of my crew working out in the mornings now. So um, we try to stay healthy. Do I like a, a, a beer or a glass? Oh, absolutely. I'm not telling you to, uh, you know, go and hibernate in a cupboard and not eat or drink anything. What I'm saying is eat modestly, um, moderately, I should say. Work out, get some exercise, have some fun, and get some uh, air in your lungs. We, we, we don't do that anymore. We don't sit down and we don't talk to our kids about um, eating correctly and what, trying different foods. You know, and I keep saying to all the lectures that I give around the country, you know, Take your kids to a supermarket, let them pick some fresh fruits and vegetables, get them home, and spices, salt and pepper, blindfold them, and for everyone to get right with a guest, after tasting it and touching it, smelling it, uh, give them 25 cents or 50 cents or inflation now a dollar, and make it fun so they understand and learn, so they're not always stuck in, you know, pizza and macaroni and cheese and, and, and chicken fingers. Exactly right. And and you've done some work in that area with educating people about food. Can you tell us about some of the charities that you're involved with? Uh, yeah. I mean, I huge with Gary Sinise, uh, myself, a partners in the Wounded Warrior Project, GarySiniseFoundation.org, who, uh, you know, we were just in uh, Brook Army Medical Center in San Antonio feeding 5,300 wounded warriors. Um, on May the 17th, we'll uh, all be there, Gary and myself. I will be in uh, Bethesda, Maryland, feeding 8,000 wounded warriors and their caregivers. I do a lot with veterans, uh, a lot with kids' cancer. Um, and, and about last year, I think we did 70 charities from my restaurants um, where we've appeared and, and given donations. And, and to me, uh, Stacey, yeah, it's interesting. At the time of my life when I believe God gives us all a, 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 a I don't know, a, a gift, whatever that gift may, may be, mine's cooking, yours is, is radio, whatever that is. 
um, and it's time to share that with people. So I spent a lot of time traveling the country. Uh, I'm off to Afghanistan on the 3rd of, of June till the 10th with the military cooking and doing all that sort of stuff. So I spent a lot of time uh, giving back. A lot of a lot of time giving back uh, to our people, especially the military. You know, I uh, it's funny you mentioned when we came up with the question about charities. It seems at times that that what you do for these restaurant owners is is kind of a charitable act as well. Between um, you know spending money on on rehabbing their restaurant, fixing their menu, and and getting into their personal lives and why their businesses are failing, it it really is an act of compassion. Or it seems that way to me. I just love, I love um, the effect that we have. There are 32 members of my crew, um, not that helpers fix restaurants, because there's only myself, the designer, and Tom, and two helpers. The rest are volunteers. But uh, we have 32 crew on cameras and lights and, and sound. And, and the elation that we get after a real, and it's literally a real 36 hours and a real $10,000, to see the faces and the lives that we change, and if you think we've just finished our 71st episode, 63 of those restaurants are doing gangbusters. So we've lost 70. The one we just fixed, I can't tell you about yet, but uh, um, I think that's a pretty good odd, 90 plus percent. Absolutely. That, that's an impressive track record. You know, when we think of the small businesses in this country are failing dramatically, you know, every turn and uh, bump in the road. Um, we're saving people's homes and saving their families and relationships and, and giving them hope and second chances. Exactly right. I had a question which is kind of a secret question, and we'll cut it from the interview if you like, but I've been watching some of the competitions that you've been involved with on the Food Network, and I was wondering if you'd ever just wish that Ann Burrell would come down with the flu or something <laughs> just so she can stay out of your way. Here's, here's what I'll tell you about Ann, and you can keep it in. I have no words to that because she knows how I feel. Anne is such a, a great competitor, okay? Um, I think she's such a competitor, sometimes she, she forgets that, uh, you know, there are other people out there. And, uh, you know, she's a, she's a superhuman being, uh, and I think she forgets that. If you, if you could remember that it's not, life is not all about competition, uh, it would be a lot nicer. Um, I, I, I really like her. But, uh, you know, I always make a joke when I do my live shows, you know. It's like a love-hate relationship. She loves me, and, you know, um, it's not. It's, uh, it's a fun time, and, and television obviously plays on them things. Um, and I, I, I do things to taunt her just to get her wound up, because uh, she gets wound up easily. I'm glad you said that. And I like, and I like the... I like the uh, the, the competition to a point and then you know competitions to me are are fun but they get old I would rather do something and give something back to somebody else than, than put a medal or a title on the chest to me that's more important Excellent. well I'm glad you said that because my, my daughters are big fans of your show and I think they were watching an episode of Chopped or they were watching Worst Cooks in America and, and my youngest daughter was just like well what is wrong with Ann Burrell? I, you know, and so it's it's good that you've explained that now, and and that way when she listens to this, she'll have a more balanced view of these things. Yeah, you know, not all people, you know, other people have said I I deal well with stress. A lot of people don't, and and again, you know how stress stress is fear leaving the body, as they say, or pain is, um, and I think some people don't deal with that very well, uh, and it's our job to kind of help them deal with it better. Okay, well, we've got some food questions for you. What was your favorite food as a child? Cornflakes. Really? Yeah, I grew up, uh, I grew up eating cornflakes and milk. Hmm. And uh, do you have a favorite comfort food? Roast chicken and mashed potatoes. Huh. Okay. What do you put on your pizza, since you mentioned it earlier? Pizza, I have um, pepperoni. Um, and meat. I'm a meat lover. Um, occasionally, because Gail is all healthy, she'll have vegetables on half and we'll have meat on half. So <laughs> We know the feeling. <laughs> <laughs> is there a food that you can't get anymore that you wish was still around? Uh, yeah, English bacon. English bacon. And black pudding. 
or blood pudding. It's very different in this country that, yeah, we use, it's almost like Canadian bacon, English bacon. There's, there's very little fat on it. Okay. Is there a food that no matter what time of the day or night that you just can't resist, that if somebody puts it in front of you, you just have to try it? Any dessert. Really? Okay. What do you think is the best thing, the best food that you yourself make, the dish that you would put up against anybody else's? Uh, honestly, everything I touch. <laughs> All right. That's a good answer. I'm, I, yeah, I'm very comfortable in cooking any style of food or any type of food. So we say, take that, Ann Burrell. Yeah. <laughs> is there, what is the favorite dish that, that another chef makes for you? Is there, is there a dish that some other, other chefs that you know that every time you see them, you ask them to make it for you? Well, there's, there's, and, and, uh, I eat in a restaurant in Philadelphia called Park in Rittenhouse Square. And I gotta tell you, the chef there, um, and he's not a known chef. He just makes the best mashed potato and, uh, uh, roasted chicken, and then Michelle Richard. Everything Michelle Richard touches in Citronelle and Central in D.C. is, you know, he's like my mentor, my 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 uh, my buddy. And I gotta tell you, if he cooked, it, it, no matter what he cooked, where it was, I would eat it because it's gonna be amazing. And along those lines, are there any restaurants that you miss that have that have gone out of business or gone under that you wish would come back? Yeah, uh, Roberta Donna had a restaurant called Laboratoria, and it was inside a restaurant called Galileo in D.C. Uh, they closed it, uh, and I wish, because they were bringing that, because this Laboratoria was a very small restaurant within a restaurant where he cooked for, for six or eight tables, uh, you know, like 16, 20 people maximum, and everything was amazing. And I, and I you know, I hadn't seen that since that went out of business, and I... And I speak to Roberto, you know, every couple of weeks and say, come on, bring that back, bring it back. <laughs> I'm surprised she can resist. Yeah, well, it's my both. One other question. What is your favorite street food? Stew food? Street food. Uh, you know, food oh, you can get on food. a street Oh, street food. food. Yeah. Um, I don't really do that much street food, to be honest with you. I'm not, I'm not. I'm not against it. I just don't do it because I'm always in airports and, and hotels. Okay. I don't really do that much street food. But I've put it, but the ones I've had, you know, tacos and things like that, uh, they've been fine. But I'm not a big street lover. Is there something that, like when you're home, that your kids always ask for you to make for them? Yeah, I do a chicken, uh, a roast chicken. <laughs> it sounds weird, I know, but we do roast chicken with, uh, I do a lemon green bean salad for the, for the girls and uh, my little one, Tally, always says, Daddy, can we have the chicken and beans? <laughs> Excellent. Okay, well, that, that wraps up all the questions that we had. We are very grateful for your time uh, and taking the time to talk with us. Uh, you're welcome, Stacey. Thank you very much for, uh, for what you do, and uh, we appreciate that. And uh, good luck, and we'll talk to you soon. Yes, good luck with the show. Thanks. Thanks. Bye-bye. And that was our interview with Chef Robert Irvine. We are very grateful for him coming on our show and uh, sharing his wisdom and experience with us and uh, his fondness for roast chicken and mashed potatoes. Yes, I was going to, we forgot to ask him what the best thing he ate this week was, but I'm pretty sure it was, it was roast, roast, roast chicken and mashed it, potatoes. It may have been roast chicken. And, and so I had to refrain from suggesting that Chef Irvine try my mother's roast chicken, which is a desiccated bird that died hard, coated in paprika, and consigned to an oven for who knows how long. And then you had to sit down at a table and eat it. And by the time I was maybe 12 or 13 years old, I would just bring all the condiments out of the, out of the fridge to the table. And I would try roast chicken with anything I could lay my hands on. Mustard, salsa, bean dip, horseradish sauce, you name it. Anything to choke that stuff down. I'm going to venture to guess to say that Robert Irvine's chicken tastes better. I was going to say, that's the oddest walk-up to a food porn section we've had. <laughs> Desiccated chicken walking into food porn. I'm trying to <laughs> let people know how bad it could possibly get, and then we're going to tell them how great things are. Yay! Because in addition to our trip to the lexicon, the lexicon to see Charity Parkinson and deliver unto her the cupcakes that she so rightly deserved, we stopped at a barbecue place. Are you saying I better go dust off the tape and play the food porn theme? I think you should. <laughs> Thank you.
Ouch. Wow. All right. That's the food porn theme. Now tell us about this Red State Barbecue. Red State Barbecue. It is off the side of the road on Highway 25, north of Lexington, Kentucky. Which exit? 120. Wow. That's impressive. Little dorky. It also happens to be the very same exit as the Kentucky, uh, the, um, the Kentucky Horse Park, the, the Great Lexington Horse Park. Oh, that's right. If so, you don't, if you don't go to the Horse Park, which is one of Kentucky's big attractions, and go the other way, you can get some really good barbecue. Or do both. You know, stop over there for lunch. It's the same exit, just the other side of the highway. Yes, but since we were hungry, we skipped the Horse Park <laughs> and went to Red State Barbecue. Well, we do recommend the Horse Park. We do. My, I've been there with my daughter. My mother was there. Everybody loves it. It's a, lots of horses. You can see how wide their strides are. You can ride them. You can do all kinds of stuff. But you can't eat them. That's why you got to go to Red State Barbecue, where they don't have any horse. Well, they also, as it turns out, didn't have a couple of other things. <laughs> and that's what we want to talk about today. So uh, on our little field trip was me, my girlfriend, Laura, my daughter, Caitlin, uh, and you. And me. And uh, we went in for barbecue. And because Caitlin's a vegetarian... We needed some non-meat items, and so, uh, you know how we like to talk about uh, the testament to a good restaurant. So, here's a, here's a curveball. You're a restaurant that specializes in meat, and we're here looking for a vegetarian offering. So, let's see what you do with that. <laughs> and they did. Well, they, before we get there, so Red State Barbecue, um, we found it on a phone, right? We were just kind of looking around, yes. trying to find stuff that was in the area. Once we found out we couldn't eat the horses at the horse park, we were looking for yeah. alternatives. Sad. So we saw this based on where it was on the map, and it was a barbecue place. We think, oh, it's kind of off the beaten path, and it's a barbecue place. Um, and Kentucky is a red state, not the end of the politics of it all, but uh, the Red State Barbecue was a little tiny shack. I mean, it was built, I would say, nearly 100 years ago from the look yes. of it. it it looks like it used to be the roadside stand for the farm that was behind it. Yes, so exactly right. It's one of those kinds of buildings. It's a low building, pretty small. It was there was nobody in our way when we got there, so I yeah, imagined. We I imagined were, we were greeted by the new waitress, the new waitress who uh, was a or still is a school teacher. Yes, and so she also used big words when describing food porn, <laughs> and she said that most people in the area are not cognizant that they have their own smoker. Yes. Which is always a good sign. Always a good sign. And so, um, we, when we go to barbecue places, uh, cause like we've gone to places like Famous Dave's and we've ordered their trash can lid of meat, which has every conceivable type of barbecue food. The brisket, the pork, the chicken. ribs, and the chicken. And so we were trying to replicate that at Red State Barbecue, only come to find out that... Well, the, the first thing we, we did was put in our drink order. And if you're in Kentucky, eating at barbecue, there's two words uh, in the drink menu that should come to mind. Sweet tea should really spring to mind. And so, as we walked in, being one to notice things, I noticed there was an igloo cooler that said sweet tea on it. So I said, well, there's authenticity, if, if you've ever seen it. There's an igloo cooler where they push the little button at the bottom and out comes the sweet tea. So, Caitlin ordered a sweet tea, I ordered a sweet tea, and Laura ordered a sweet tea, and you ordered Diet Coke or something. But, come to find out, that they didn't think they had enough sweet tea to fill a whole glass. So the, the waitress, she was new, and, and she didn't know how to make the sweet tea because it was only her third day or something. And she she confided to us that she might be able to fill half of one glass with sweet tea, and so she didn't want to offer us less than a full amount. So we said, okay, bring us regular tea, and we'll make it sweet ourselves, which we know how to do. So she came back with the bad news that there was but one glass of regular tea it did fill a whole glass, but just the one. And so the rest of us were left to do without. Yes. And this was just the opening volley and what would turn out to be a number of missteps. Well, because I, you know, to be optimistic, you're like, well, they're they're out of sweet tea. They're out of unsweet tea. But I'm sure they've got everything else. Well, and that's the funny thing about barbecue is barbecue is really, for being low and slow and takes hours and hours to cook, it's really the original fast food. Because when you walk into a barbecue place, Everything that you're going to eat is done. Right. If it's not done, they're not getting If they start up a, a, a pork, you're not eating that anytime soon. It's right. hours and hours and hours away. So they, if they have it when you get there, you get to eat it. And if they don't, you don't. And a uh, little foreshadowing, that's kind of what happened to us. <laughs> because in, in trying to order every kind of barbecued meat imaginable, uh, they did not have chicken. Well, poor Laura. So Laura ordered oh, ribs. She because um, we walked in. They, their ribs are famous for ribs. They have great ribs, and even the waitress said the ribs were amazing. Uh, so Laura wanted ribs and chicken, and it turned out that they didn't have any ribs, 
and she had to go check in the back with the lady who makes everything, and they didn't have any more chicken. Someone was out getting chickens, <laughs> and that may have been live, I don't know. Yes, we didn't want to ask, but from what we know of barbecue, that means there'd be no chicken today. Or ribs. Well, ribs we knew for sure. Chicken, yeah, so mm, yes. we're down to brisket <laughs> and pork. They were waffling on the chickens. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, but um um no chicken, no ribs. And so we said, we we'll may have to make do with a whole bunch of extra pulled pork and brisket. Pulled pork and brisket. Beef brisket. Mm-hmm. And, but before we did that, we made sure that they had macaroni and cheese and coleslaw for Katie. Yes, and they, french fries. And french fries. And so they did. And so we were able to proceed with our order. I've got pictures. Yes, there are pictures. The brisket was good. The pulled pork was good. And i got to say that Laura's pulled pork sandwich was quite good. Even the bun was good. So let's talk barbecue for a second. So uh, For any, a second? <laughs> any decent barbecue, when, when it comes out of the back, it should be dry. It should be bare. Mm-hmm. It should just be meat. And so in the barbecued world, there's going to be some barbecue sauce, um, if at all, on the table, which is affectionately referred to as table sauce. <laughs> Um, and stuff that would happen in the back of house would be mopping sauce or slopping sauce, but that's, again, not the best sign. Um, bear meat means the meat itself is good, and, and we tasted the meat as it was. But they had three table sauces there. So they had a mustard-based sauce, which is a personal favorite of mine. I love mustard-based sauces because I grew up with them. There was um, kind of a ketchup sauce, so- a traditional ketchup-y, um, smoky sauce, and then there was kind of a hotter sauce that was also yeah. a red ketchup sauce. Yeah, and I found that the, the hotter sauce was not to my liking. But if I mixed all three of them together, it made an adequate uh, covering. For yeah, the they were good sauces. I mean, the uh, the sweet red and the uh, and the the mustard were both excellent on their own and together, mixed up in a in a crazy soup. <laughs> uh, I had some green beans that were uh, were not unfamiliar with the touch of bacon. <laughs> the macaroni and cheese was good, and the coleslaw was was also good. I had corn pudding too. Wow! So Red State Barbecue does all that stuff. Pretty well, and knowing us like you do, listeners, you know we're going back on Ribbon Chicken Day. <laughs> Whenever that happens to be. Yeah, so if you're driving through Kentucky on 75, and you want to stop at the Lexington, Lexington Horse Park, which is one of Kentucky's premier attractions, make sure you cross the highway two minutes out of your way and head over to Red State Barbecue. And when you walk in the door, ask them what they've got available right then. Yes, always good to know. Food porn tip. From the Sajcast. So Red State Barbecue, like many excellent barbecue places, um, we're not going to put up their website because uh, they ain't got one. <laughs> they, they don't know what uh, they don't know what a website is. They don't have a Twitter handle. There's no hashtag. We you know we, we have internet there. You so. have to go analog and just drive there, open the door, and walk inside, and then ask what they've got ready. It's worth your time. Yes. And then um, you've got a taco story. Not, not to have to compare and contrast barbecue and taco, because oh, I wouldn't want to have to pick. But uh, since we were both at Red State Barbecue, I thought I would mention um, Django Western Taco here in Cincinnati. And this is uh, obviously a southwestern taco-y thing. It's kind of American meets Mexican fusion. Suzanne had been telling me about it for some time. She had been there once and had kind of an off experience. And sometimes, you know, well, like, and we've talked about this a lot, uh, although Robert Irvine is less forgiving than, than uh, we are. We, uh, we're generally willing to give something a second shot, especially if you were having a bad day and you ended up at the restaurant and you're just in a grumpy mood. And then, well, I didn't like the food. Well, maybe, you know, because you were grumpy or whatever. So Suzanne was willing to go back. So we went back there, and we actually had a, an excellent meal and, and a, a really delightful time. It was like a Wednesday or something, so it was quiet. They, uh, they make pretty much everything there by hand. Except for their chips, which they serve at the beginning of the meal, um, these are made by a chip company locally. Uh, they just don't have the they don't have the room, honestly, to make them there. What's odd about them is they're basically Doritos, as in they're triangular corn chips, but they have um, the the red Dorito powder on them, essentially. And I'm sure it's homemade. And they're they're really good as Doritos go. I mean, they're they're some of the best Doritos that you could get your hands on. What I found odd though was because the Dorito itself was like so complicated that when I dipped it in salsa or guacamole, it was a Dorito and guacamole and not just, you know, that corn conveyance, which we enjoy so much. So anyway, the high points are, are the Doritos, um, although, like I said, I, I would have actually preferred an unflavored variety so that I could have enjoyed some of their really awesome starters. 
So we decided, you know, uh, we were going to be good because we were just heading out on a Wednesday or something, and we didn't want to, you know, gorge on the giant vat of cheese and chorizo, as we might often want to do. So we had the bean dip. We thought we'd be sensible. And the beans were covered in cheese that got melted and burnt and all brown. And holy cow, was that just some amazing bean dip. So it was a nice creamy, you know, uh, refried bean base that had cheese all over the top, and it was just scorched beyond recognition, and you could eat it with a spoon. I mean, you did not need the corn conveyance in that situation. They also, I mean, we had guacamole too, and it was it was good. Again, I I felt like the guacamole was nice and well-balanced, but it was competing directly with the corn chips, which, again, for someone who spent so much time on their menu, I was surprised that they had a flavored chip to compete directly flavor-wise with the other things that were on the table. But turns out you can order some corn uh, tortillas that they'll grill up for you, and they'll just serve them to you. So I ended up using those. I just had a little order of those, and I used those instead of the chips as not to compete. But uh, my entree, which I, we have a picture of, was the the taco trifecta, which was a chicken taco, uh, a pork taco, and a steak taco. And they had all kinds of crazy fixings. You know, there were, like, you know, pineapple mango sauces and all sorts of nice combinations there and the, and the tacos were excellent the nice part about them was that they were a corn tortilla that they grilled to the point where it was almost a hard shell taco it was right on that magical transformation before it turns into a crunchy taco completely so it was a, it was a really nice treat and uh one of the sides i had was the um the jalapeno bacon cornbread which sounds exactly as good as it was I mean, smoky, spicy, um, and, and that sweet corn all mixed together for a fantastic time. So I say, if you're, if you're in the neighborhood and you want to look up Django Western Taco, we'll, we'll put up links for they, in fact, do have a page on Facebook anyway, so you can, you can like them there as, uh, as I have and give them a try. It's, it's one of the, uh, one of the best most interesting taco places I've been to lately, and certainly the the best taco place this week. And so I would say that that brings us neatly to the end of Sajcast 22. Our 22nd ever Sajcast. This week, sponsoring. Sponsoring. For the first time ever, the Free Store Food Bank of Cincinnati. Makers of food for 300,000 people a year. Uh, Makers of 18 million pounds of donated food and groceries. And 94 cents of every dollar directly to their clients. Thanks for listening, and thanks again to our special guest, Chef Robert Irvine. We'll see you next time, unless, of course, the world is destroyed. (laughs) 